This morning, we continue our series, Faith of Our Fathers. Now, there isn't a particular bust in the Faith Hall of Fame that we are going to be examining this week, but instead, we'll be in a passage that acts as a bit of a summary for all of the characters we meet in this chapter. May this summary be an encouragement to us as we, too, are navigating our walks of faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 to 16, we read the word of the Lord. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Thus ends the reading. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. God, I pray that you would speak through your word this morning, that you would... Perform the miracle that feeds our souls. We pray this in your name. Amen. I was browsing Netflix the other day, looking for another show to get sucked into when I stumbled upon The Last Kingdom. Now I'm a bit of a sucker for medieval time pieces. I love history and I've always been fascinated. I've always just loved stories about medieval Europe. Knights and swords, lords and vassals, Robin Hood and Vikings. I'm glad I didn't live during that time, but I'm just fascinated by stories about it and stories that are set in that time period. And while I didn't get very far into the Last Kingdom series for a variety of reasons, the premise of the story struck me as it relates to the idea of exile and living as an exile that we see in our text this morning. The story is about a young man who is named Uthred of Bebenberg. He's about eight or nine when we first meet him, and Viking Danes are invading the Anglo-Saxon kingdom of Northumbria. Uthred's father takes a small army to meet the Danes and kick them from their land, telling Uthred to stay, for if he dies then the small land of Bebenberg is his, and the lordship needs to stay in the family. Young Uthred waits for his, until his father is out of sight and then takes a horse to join him, wanting to be part of the battle, to earn glory and honor as an eight-year-old. His uncle sees this and tells one of his servants to make sure Uthred doesn't make it back for then the lordship would fall to the uncle. Uthred's father and the small army are soundly defeated by the invading Danes, but instead of being killed, Uthred is captured. The story then jumps about 12 years into the future. Uthred is now in his 20s and trying to figure out life and where his loyalties lie. He is an Anglo-Saxon, living with, surrounded by, being raised by Viking Danes. And though he is the rightful heir of a small lordship in Northumbria, he can't return home at this time. 
He is in exile with a foreign people while still physically living in his homeland. In exile. A foreigner. Being assimilated into the culture that surrounds him. That surrounds us. Can anyone relate to that? When you pick up and move and go to a place that isn't your cultural, your geographic home, you begin to be assimilated into the culture of the place that you are now living. It's natural. It's natural. Living in northern New Jersey, I have to drive differently than I did when I was living in rural Minnesota. There are different rules to the road. And while some of them drive me crazy, some of them are quite an improvement. And as I have continued to drive here, I have had to assimilate into the way that people drive in Jersey. I still make some faux pas. I still don't follow the culturally acceptable rules of the road as well as I should. I'm still learning. But if I were to drive in rural Minnesota the way that I drive here, well, I'd be turning some heads. You see, culture naturally assimilates the foreigner. Many of us here in this room were not born here in the USA, and many of us that were born here have parents or grandparents that immigrated to this country. And though we have been able to maintain many of our native traditions, many aspects of our native culture, we have also been heavily affected by the American culture. For example, though we may still speak our native tongue, life is easier on us if we learn English. This isn't a law or a mandate forcing us to learn English, but it makes life easier. We can live in better harmony with less frustration with the culture around us if we speak the common tongue, the language of the people that we live amongst. The way that we dress is also influenced by the culture around us. Last night, we spent some time celebrating Aaron Peter and his marriage that is just around the corner. And while it was great to celebrate the Pakistani culture by dressing more culturally, those clothes don't tend to be worn on a regular basis here in the States. For many, for those assimilated more into the culture of the U.S., they come out for celebrations, for special events or times. They come out when those of the cultural are all going to be together to celebrate a piece of their culture. But they stay in the closet for work or school or when we go to the store to pick up groceries. Culture naturally assimilates the foreigner. It doesn't necessarily try to override or erase the foreigner's heritage. But culture has a certain tolerance level that it tries to assimilate to. For example, the diversity of culture is celebrated, or yeah, the diversity of culture that is celebrated here in North Jersey in many ways, you know, I I haven't really experienced in many other places that I have lived, and I love it. It's fantastic. The food, the personalities, hearing the different languages being spoken as I walk the streets. Grocery stores that sell food I've never seen before, labeled in languages that I don't know how to read. Spending time with people that I enjoy and realizing that as I spend time with them, I'm able to understand them better, able to work through their accents and dialects a little better. Man, I love it. 
It's fantastic. God, you know, he made all of us. He created all of these different cultures. There isn't a culture that is better than another culture. Our society may be more, may be more accepting of some cultures over others, but the reality is that our culture is not the end-all, be-all, deciding factor. The colorful array of people and cultures that inhabit our planet are all fantastic and unique and awesome. And the gospel, the good news of Jesus, it fits into every one of them. As Tim Keller writes in his book, The Reason for God, Christianity isn't culturally rigid. While some may push an agenda that Christianity is the enemy of multiculturalism, the reality is that Christianity has been more adaptive of diverse cultures than secularism. Man, I don't think I said that right. Secularism, there we go, got it. And many other worldviews. Well, currently it could be argued that Christianity is centered in the Western Hemisphere. It won't be long before it'll be more centered in the Eastern and Southern Hemispheres. You guys, God created each of us. He doesn't care what your culture is. The gospel is not culturally rigid. It speaks to each of us, to all of us, where we are. And it tells us of God's great love for us, for all of his people, for all of his creation. And you know, I know this to be true. I know this. And I love the diverse people groups that God has put on the earth and put in my life. And that I see on display around me on a daily basis. And yet, and yet, when I'm driving on a Saturday night, I pass a certain demographic that is walking toward a particular gathering place, and I shake my head and wonder why they still cut their hair the way they do, why they wear what they do, and why won't they just drive? We have a tolerance level for other cultures. And when people are assimilating to the general culture, we have grace for that. We celebrate the differences that we see as natural and understandable. But when people refuse to assimilate to a culture, when the tolerance level of the majority is exceeded, we move past harmony and we move into dissonance. Our culture has an improving tolerance level for ethnic diversity. It's not perfect. It's not where it should be, but it seems to be moving in the right direction. And yet our culture has a low level of tolerance for Christianity. The idea that there is an absolute truth is offensive to our culture. The idea that the Bible is true, that it is the word of God, is idiotic according to our culture. There are things in there that are offensive, right? There are things I don't like. There are things I don't understand. There are things I only partially understand. And what I'm picking up, man, I really, I don't like. So how could this be true? Our culture wonders. No, I am encouraged to embrace my truth. You are encouraged to embrace your truth. Perception has become truth in the eyes of the culture. And so the idea that there can be absolute truth, something that is true for all people and for all time, is incredibly countercultural. It's incredibly dissonant. It doesn't harmonize with societal beliefs at all. The idea that we can never be good enough to earn God's favor is also offensive to our culture. 
We are obsessed with earning things. We want to have participation in the good things that come our way. And what's more, we don't want to believe that we are born sinful, that we are born in need. We want to believe that deep down we are good people, that we just do bad things sometimes. But the Bible tells us differently. The Bible tells us that fundamentally we are all broken people and that we are all in need of a Savior and that we do not participate in our salvation. Our good works bring glory to the Father, but they do not earn us a spot in heaven. And our culture finds this incredibly offensive. Our culture also isn't fond of the idea that a place like hell exists or that a loving God would send people there. These pieces of Christianity exceed the tolerance level of our culture, and so they are seen as dissonant. And so believing in them, we become dissonant. As we talked about last week, dissonance is hard. Dissonance is it's uncomfortable. We prefer harmony. Sometimes we crave harmony. Walking in faith, living a life of faith in Jesus Christ demands that we live in dissonance with an unbelieving world. And so, for you, for me, faith exiles. Faith exiles. In our text this morning, we get an interlude from our walk down the Faith Hall of Fame. We don't have a story about a particular character, but instead a summary of all of them. Our passage today talks about how the people who walked by faith recognized that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. They recognized that this was not their home. And they didn't seek to make themselves comfortable here. If they had wanted to be comfortable here, they could have been, but they weren't looking to make this earth their home. No, they had their eyes on a better country. They had their eyes on a heavenly one. These people that walked by faith, they weren't perfect, they had their flaws, they had their shortcomings, but they kept their eyes, their hearts on the Lord and His promises. And though they stumbled, they lived in dissonance with the world. Some of them did things the world did not expect, and some did things that the world did not appreciate. They lived realizing that this is not their home. They lived not to be comfortable here, but to follow God's call on their life. What a way to live. How are you doing with that? One of the things that always struck me about this verse is how it begins. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. I remember bringing this passage to my dad and questioning him about what kind of God exactly is he teaching me about? One that doesn't keep his promises? The Bible is admitting right here that these guys didn't get what they were promised. And then as I continue to read and honestly as I've continued to live and I've grown and I've matured, I've realized that you can rejoice in a promise that has not yet been fulfilled. that has not yet been kept. I can rejoice that one day I will not feel pain any longer. 
that the sorrow of this world will pass away. I can rejoice in the reality of heaven, the true fulfillment of God's promises. I can rejoice in the promise that I will one day meet and hold my little Ava, who was still born last January. I can rejoice in all of those things, even though I haven't experienced them yet, because as we walk in faith, what is promised becomes real. As we walk in faith, what is promised becomes real. I know that God will fulfill those promises. And knowing that he will fulfill them, trusting that his word is true, makes the future realities as if they were present realities. And I can have confidence now in experiencing the joy that God has in store for me at a future time. And the same is true for you. The same is true for all of us who put our trust, our faith in Jesus. And though I put my faith and my trust in Jesus, and though I am confident that he will keep his promises to me, I still battle my flesh and my doubts and my fears and my desire to live in harmony with the world around me. How often I find myself relating to Uthrid of Bebenberg, an exile that is torn between the kingdom of my ancestry, that which I believe and grew up believing, and the kingdom of the people of my upbringing, the culture that surrounds me. How are you doing with living in dissonance with the unbelieving world? How are you doing living as an exile? It can be hard to be an outlier. It's not fun. It's not easy. I want to go and participate in the sin with the world around me. It looks fun. It looks enjoyable. I don't want to recognize how broken I am. It's easier just to ignore it and compare myself to others and in an attempt to build myself up and to paint an admittedly false picture of how good I am. A lie to myself of how moral I am. That's so much more comfortable than recognizing that so many of my desires reflect a broken and sinful person. Each of us will struggle at different times and in different situations to do perfectly what God is calling us to do. What God wants us to do. And what he is instructing us to do. Sometimes the pressures of the world, the coaxing of the culture around us, the pressure to assimilate is, is, is overwhelming. Sometimes we fail where we intend to succeed. Sometimes the temptation to live in harmony is more than we can withstand. And it just sounds so good to the ear. And so we give in. We conform. We harmonize. Sometimes I do the things I do not want to do. The things that I know are wrong. And sometimes I agree with the things that I know aren't true. Just so I don't stick out any longer. Just so I don't have to bear the burden of dissonance. Just so that I can have some peace. But do I really get peace? Maybe for a time. But the Holy Spirit doesn't let me rest. The Spirit calls to me. It is convicting me of my sin, my failing, my harmony with the world. It is calling me to repentance. I don't know where you're at in your walk of faith. 
I don't know what pitfalls you have encountered. I don't know what trains of thought you have taken for a ride. I don't know what sin is tangled around your heart and your feet, causing you to stumble and lose confidence. I don't know where you are in your walk, but I know this. You have not sinned more than God can forgive. You have not sinned more than God can forgive. You are never too far gone for the love of God. And you may look at me and say, Pastor, you don't know what I've done. And that's true, I I don't. But God does. You see, Jesus carried every one of your sins up that hill to Golgotha. He is intimately aware of each and every one of them. And though that may freak us out, the idea that God knows everything we've ever done wrong and everything we will ever do wrong. And then that thought itself may begin to fill us with shame. Know that he took that shame as well. With the sin. And he died for it there on Calvary. Though we are exiles wandering this world looking for our heavenly home, know that God has not exiled you from his love and his forgiveness. Instead, God exiled Jesus. And on the cross, while carrying the burden of our sin, Jesus cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God cast out Jesus in our place. God clothed Jesus in the dirty, rotten rags of our sin so that we could be clothed in the pure robes of Jesus' righteousness. Jesus was cast out, exiled so that we could be welcomed home. This world is not our home, church. This is not our home. What an amazing, forgiving, fantastic, and loving God we serve. Amen.